this place being a house of prayer for all the peoples, all the nations. Jesus is in the temple and he sees the selling of the oxen, the sheep, the pigeons, the changing of the money, people sitting there. And so what he's experiencing is a lot of noise. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you probably recall the time when Jesus cleansed the temple of money changers. It makes quite an impression on all of us by showing Jesus' angry side. So what makes him angry? Here's David in the second part of his message called Fiery Jesus. There was an annual temple tax that needed to be paid by every man. And so people, especially coming from Roman provinces had Caesar's coinage and they had Caesar's insignia on that coin and that wouldn't be accepted in the temple so they had to have temple coinage that only could be used to pay the temple tax. Think in terms of, you know, Chuck E. Cheese. You can go there and have all the coins in the world that you want, and you can go try to put them into the machines, but they don't work. You've got to change your coinage to Chuck E. Cheese coinage for it to work. The only way you could pay the temple tax was with the temple coinage. So Jesus walks into the temple, and he walks into what's called the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you don't know this, it's fascinating. The centerpiece of the temple was called the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. It's where God's presence laid. Only the high priest could go in there one time a year to offer the blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But then you had the outer court of the priests where a lot of the other priests did their work. Uh, for Ze Zechariah, for example, who was wanting that child and so desperately prayed to God for that child, was in the court of the priests when the angel Gabriel came to him and promised him and his wife Elizabeth, John the baptizer. Uh, then the outer court outside of that one were the court of the men, then the court of the women, and then the court of the Gentiles. So the court of the Gentiles was the outward concentric circle around the temple and the centerpiece was the Holy of Holies. And the whole idea was that the Gentiles would come and there they would be able to begin the process of offering animals for the forgiveness of their sins as well. Now what's going on with this idea of the Gentiles and the temple? Well, you need to know that when God formed the nation of Israel, he wasn't trying to form a group of Jews who would be only inclusive of themselves. He gave them as a command from the very beginning that they should have a heart for the Gentiles. Look, for example, at Isaiah 49, verse 6. God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So the monotheistic of God chose Israel. He gave them his unique laws. He gave them his way of worshiping him. And he said, if you'll just follow the ways I call you, I will bless you in abundance. And the nations of the earth will look at the ways I bless you and they'll want to come and worship me as well. Because Israel, God said, I'm calling you not only to be a pure, holy people, I'm calling you to be a light to the Gentiles. I want you to make sure that Gentiles all over the world will be able to come to me. Then in Isaiah 56, we see in verse 7, 
These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Who are the these? Look, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God wanted his house to be called a house of prayer for all peoples all over the world, for all Gentiles. So God had a heart for people coming to faith in him through the Jewish people. And he formed the temple as an expression of his desire that Gentiles would come and be in the court of the Gentiles. And therefore, they could pray, this place being a house of prayer for all the peoples, all the nations, and they then would want to buy their animals who would come and then be offered in sacrifice to the one God, and he could then forgive them of their sins as well. So keep that in mind as we walk through the next several verses. Jesus is in the temple and he sees the selling of the oxen, the sheep, the pigeons, the changing of the money, people sitting there. And so what he's experiencing is a lot of noise, a lot of clamor, people making a profit off this holy place money changers clanging coinage and saying to people, hey, I'll change that coinage from Caesar, but I'll make a 10% profit by giving you the temple coinage so that you can offer this gift to the Lord. It was people being driven by money, being driven by pride. There was a leftward lurch of the temple. The temple of God had become something God never intended it to be. They weren't obeying the righteous laws of God. They weren't a pure, holy people. They didn't have evangelism as their heartbeat to reach Gentiles. They just wanted to make a buck. They, they just wanted to make a few shekels. Their passion was money, power, and privilege. And, and Jesus is watching all of this happen. And then notice what happens next. And making a whip of cords. And making a whip of cords. So he took some cords and he started making together a whip. Think about that. Folks, you don't make a whip in a minute. You don't make a whip in a couple minutes. You've got to carefully pull all of the strands together to make it exactly the way you want it to be. And he made a cord of a whip. It must have taken him a pretty long time. And don't you think with each minute that passed by, he got a, a little bit angrier and a little bit angrier and a little bit angrier. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He, he was angry with the leftward lurch of the temple. He, he took that whip and he drove not only the oxen and the pigeons and, and probably the droppings they had left behind. He probably was angry at the smell that they'd created as well. He drove all of them out, but he drove out those selling the animals as well, including the money changers. He had had enough. He was offended by the way his church had lurched to the left and he wanted to do something about it. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. 
do not make my father's house, notice that, my father's house, a clear claim to deity. As the second person of the Godhead, as the son, Jesus said, this is my father's house. He built this house. He owns this church. It's his construction. It's his idea. And he's my father personally who built this. And you've turned it into a house of trade, a place to make money, a place to have power. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote from Psalm 69, 9. It's a messianic psalm. And the, the disciples, seeing Jesus do this, saw a real love for his father's house, a real love for his church. And folks, all I can say is Psalm 69.9 has been one of my important life verses through the years because I want to have a zeal for the house of the Lord. And I'm going to ask all of you, do you have a zeal for the house of the Lord? Is it a passion of yours or is it just something that dots your schedule that you kindly glance at and don't really pay much serious attention to? You can't love God without loving his temple. He built the temple. It's his house. You can't love Jesus without loving that which he died for, the church. Not necessarily a building, but the people, but it's where the people come together in that building where they worship the living Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, my father's house has been hurt. And his disciples connected that to Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus quoted a messianic psalm about the zeal for the house that his disciples clearly understood as they quoted it as well. And then the religious leaders go, well, if you're the Messiah, Give us a sign, because Messiah is going to do signs and wonders, prove that you're the Messiah. We want to see that you're actually the chosen one of God. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, when he said this temple, I don't think he was looking at the spectacular stone cuttings and all the wonders of Herod's construction, I think he was looking at his own physical body. He said, destroy this temple. Uh, you know the Bible teaches clearly that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's something to be cared for. It's not something to be abused and used for your own personal glory. It's a gift from God. It's to be taken care of and bathed and put good food inside of it and make sure that you care for it. This temple of the Holy Spirit is something we all have that we're called to take care of. So I think Jesus, when he said destroy this temple, was looking at his own physical human body, God in human flesh, totally God, but also totally human in every way. And he said, and in three days, I will raise it up. Well, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? I mean, they're going, are, are you kidding me? Herod has spent 46 years adding on to the second temple construction that began four or 500 years ago with Haggai and those other guys, and he's tried to make it splendorous and beautiful, and you're saying that you'll destroy it in three days, and then you'll be able to 
lift it back up and reconstruct it to even maybe a more glorious state. And, you know, what they weren't understanding is Jesus wasn't talking about that literal temple because really now's about, what, 30 AD, and in another 40 years, this temple is going to be completely razed to the ground by the Romans. And that's why it's not been reconstructed to this day. It's why there aren't any temple sacrifices that were outlined in the Bible because there's no temple where they can happen. But Jesus wasn't talking about that temple that was going to be destroyed in another 40 years. What he was saying was this, verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So honestly, Jesus did give the religious leaders a miracle. It just wasn't one they expected, and it didn't happen at that moment. The truth is, Jesus was alluding to this fact of, you kill my body, and in three days, notice he said, I will raise it up. What an extraordinary claim. Now, in other places in the Bible, it says the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. But here, Jesus says, and I will raise it up. Jesus has all the power and all authority, even over his own life, death, and resurrection. So he says, you know, kill me, and on the third day, I will be raised from the dead. That's the miracle that Jesus said he would give to the religious leaders. He, he gave it to his disciples. And what you have in this last verse, verse 22, is the disciples later on after Jesus was raised from the dead going back and remembering this first cleansing of the temple when Jesus said this to the religious leaders, you tear down this body and I will raise it up in three days. By the way, at Jesus' trial, when he was condemned to death by the high priest, the accusation against him was he said he would destroy the temple, the sacred place of God. And Jesus wasn't talking about an earthly temple. He was talking about a physical body. Here's the point, folks. The most powerful apologetic that we have to the world today, the greatest miracle that we can give the world today is the resurrection of Jesus. If you have any spiritual skeptics in your sphere of influence, if you are a spiritual skeptic, I take you to the resurrection. Refute it. Refute it. You've got hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus dead and Jesus alive. Were they lying? Were they crazy? Or are they telling the truth? They must be telling the truth. They were Jews faithful to the truth in every possible way. They were willing to give their lives for what they knew was true, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The greatest miracle we have in the Christian faith is the resurrection. Believe me, the church was built on the resurrection, not vice versa. The Holy Scripture was built on the resurrection, not vice versa. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, we know not only is he God, but our sins are forgiven. It's the greatest miracle there is. And I invite, again, any of you who have doubts about the Christian faith, do a study of the resurrection. Disprove that apologetically. If you do, the whole Christian movement stops. Don't doubt for a second that both the Jews and the Romans, if they could have produced a body, they would have. They produce a dead body of Jesus, the movement stops. But why didn't they? They couldn't. Jesus 
body was raised to new life. It was destroyed, but three days later, on Friday, Saturday, then Sunday, any part of one day is a full day in Jewish thought. Part of a Friday, he was buried. All day Saturday, part of a Sunday, the tomb was open, and Jesus is seen as alive. He's alive, folks. The resurrection is the most powerful witness we have to the truth of who Jesus is. And here's the bottom line. That resurrection not only is an observable fact that we can believe in, it is something that should live in our hearts. Romans 8, 11 says, the power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in the hearts of those of us who believe. Please believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Feel his miraculous life-transforming power who takes you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who gives you a pardon for all of your sins, and he remembers them no more. Your sins are paid in full because of that cross and resurrection. And when his life lives within you, he'll use you powerfully to touch the world for Jesus. Let this church called Moments of Hope Church be a church committed, first of all, to the absolute authority of the Word of God. Whatever it says, we say. We commit ourselves to following what this book says, and where it's clear, we're clear. Secondly, we live by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We believe that Jesus still wants to do miracles today, the greatest of which is changing a human heart from darkness to light. And we will have, finally, as a church, a passion for everybody throughout the world to know Jesus. We want there to be a court of Gentiles in Moments of Hope Church where unbelievers come and they experience the living Lord Jesus Christ. We will never allow Moments of Hope Church to be a place of trade. Any books that are available in our church are free. They're given away. And if you wanna make a donation, all of the donations help to send at-risk kids to college. That's the passion that I have, that many others have. We don't profit one penny from it. We want the church to be the church. We want to love the church. Dear friends, if you love Jesus, you've got to love his bride. He died to give the bride of Christ life, and he died for our church. We'll love Jesus, love Moments of Hope Church, to reach the world for Jesus. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David and I discuss ways each of us can seek God's peace from within us. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and with me today is Bart Noonan with West Boulevard Ministry. Bart, Tell us about West Boulevard Ministry. Uh, Thank you, Mark, for this opportunity to speak about West Boulevard Ministry and and more importantly about Jesus Christ. West Boulevard Ministry serves the spiritual and physical needs of the families and the communities within the West Boulevard quarter to the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether we're doing neighborhood outreach cookouts, gatherings where we're bringing people outside of their apartments, their homes, into fellowship with one another, or we're doing Bible study bingo the first Wednesday of every month at Little Rock Apartments. And uh, we gather anywhere from 50 to 70 children that we share the gospel with and play bingo after our Bible study portion of the night. And a couple weeks ago, there's a young man who we've been walking with now close to three years who came in, he, he forgot something, like a lot of young young kids do, he forgot something in the um, space, and he came back in and he ended up praying out myself and all the other volunteers for the West Boulevard ministry team that were gathered there for that night and led us all in prayer and closed it out. And this young man, we've been taking to church every every Sunday for about the past year and a half. And, and that's what it's all about. It's about providing an opportunity for Jesus Christ to work inside someone's heart and, and then encourage them along the way. 
That sounds great. Now, Bart, if any of our listeners want to get in contact with you, how would they do that? The best way to do is uh, either email myself at bart at westboulevardministry.org, or they can call me straight up in my cell phone, and I always answer. I'm sort of like a doctor. The phone's always on, and that's 980-298-9027. I would encourage folks, too, to also go to our website, which is westboulevardministry.org, and there you can see some of our photo galleries. You can see some of the blogs and a lot of things we do throughout the West Boulevard Corridor to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is great having you with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Moments of Hope. I'm Jen Houston, and with me today is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for joining us today. It's wonderful being with you, Jen. Well, in your morning e-devotion series, you've recently started a series called Davidisms. Will you give us an overview of what Davidisms are? And also, I'd love to hear your take on one you published called Seek God's Peace Within. Well, that's the first one that came out. Davidisms are affectionately entitled phrases that I have learned through the years from mentors, coaches, my dad, Uh, important people in my life, something maybe I've read, maybe even something I've thought of, and they're just real ways of living life. They're common sense little phrases to help people be able to live life better. So again, I've had a lot of people through the years say, David, please put them down on paper. We've done so with a daily e-blast. If anybody would like to get that, please go to momentsofhopechurch.org, and you can receive the written Davidisms every day over the next year from Monday through Friday, and we'll be more than happy to help you get those in your inbox at 7 a.m. each morning from my heart to yours, a way to begin your day. But here's the first one that I did, Jen. It's basically when making a decision, seek God's peace within. Hmm. So people ask the question, what in the world does that mean? Well, everybody is seeking God's will for their lives in some area or another. And when you do, I always advise them, please seek God's peace. Mm. Peace is the key. What should you do when you have a huge decision before you, especially one in which you just don't know what to do? Well, here are some steps. First, pray. Ask Jesus for his wisdom. James 1.5 says he wants to give it to you in abundance. Second, lay it before the Lord. Tell him you're willing to do whatever he asks you to do. But third, talk to trusted godly friends and mm-hmm. seek their counsel. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors, Proverbs 15.22. Yeah. And usually, if you have a lot of godly people saying the same thing to you, it's probably the will of the Lord for your life. But above all, seek God's peace within. If you aren't experiencing God's peace within you, don't do it. Mm -hmm. Marilyn, my wife, and I have never made a decision unless we have God's perfect peace within our hearts. His peace indicates his will. And God's peace doesn't mean that circumstances surrounding you aren't still out of control. Mm -hmm. They may well be. But you know that God is always in control, and he will give you his peace that peace that passes all understanding to guard and guide your mind in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 6. So there will be infinite peace within you if God is calling you to do something, no matter what your circumstances may be saying to you. In fact, the safest place to be is right in the middle of God's will, Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about that as another Davidism Mm -hmm. in the immediate future. So one more time, if you don't have God's peace, don't do it. 
God's peace within is the sure fire indication that God is leading you to a place in his will for your life. Wow, this is such good encouragement. So practical and so wise. Thank you so much, David. You're welcome, Jen. And again, pray ask God for wisdom. Second, lay it before the Lord. Third, talk to trusted, godly friends when seeking God's will. Mm -hmm. But above all, seek God's peace. And when God gives you his peace, you know that's his plan for your life. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message on the Gospel of John is from our online worship service. And you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope delivered every morning to your inbox. And check out David's weekly Hopecast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to continue to pray for the frontline healthcare workers in our community. 